Good morning, Digital Wildcatters. Again, Colin is absent on the DL because of prostate injury. We really hope this clears up. He's going to go to the doctor today and see if he can find an ointment for this, maybe. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> Welcome in, Kirk. Welcome in, Mark. It's good to be here. Good to be here. Thanks for having us once again. No, you just showed up. I'm not sure we could get rid of y'all. People but. keep asking me, and now it's at the thousands level. I have so many people reach out going, are you a regular now? And I said, yes, I am. So I'm very regular. I'm, I'm a squatter. I'm here to stay. And for all the every thousands of fans out there, I'm here. It's there good to be here. Go. My week, we go. weekly dose of Houston traffic. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All righty. Let's jump in. Exxon comes out uh, last week, I think going to spend two billion dollars going to upgrade mm -hmm. a refinery i believe it's the one in beaumont going to add two hundred fifty thousand barrels to this we're going to have some ads supposedly this year in the middle east and in africa and that's because we've been cranking along refiners have been making i don't know 35 dollars 40 dollars a barrel this year does this help good bad what are we thinking well, you, you've looked at, I think, all the detailed numbers, but um, I think they're charging it and commissioning the unit now. It's a crude unit at Beaumont, about 250,000 barrel a day expansion, which I believe will be almost offset by mm -hmm. shutting down the Lyondell refinery that's been on the market mm -hmm. for a number of years uh, by the end of this year. So net ads and, and losses. Yeah, because I think I, I looked up some numbers. I think pre-COVID, we were 19 million barrels a day of capacity in the U.S., and now we're 17.9 because we had six right. refineries uh, kind of shut down. I I haven't heard anything permitting-wise on this. Like, there doesn't seem to be any delays or, or anything like that because that, that, to me, has always been the story I've heard about refining. We can't build a new refiner because can't of permit. Well, this, this, is a, this is an in-the-fence liner, brownfield expansion. It's an addition right. of a crude unit. So it's not, it's not new. It's not greenfield. Right. And I mean, that's been the biggest bottleneck we've had um, for a long time is refining capacity. So this makes sense and it's something that I'm not sure the traders are applauding, but absolutely it's good for us. Got it. The um, it is interesting though. This is kind of you know. So margins have been high, so we're getting this done. This is in the face though of. I thought this stat was kind of wild. Global shipping activity actually dropped three point nine percent year to year for December mm -hmm. twenty two, mm -hmm. and I think it actually uh, the the another stat was from November to December. I think it was down two point eight percent or something like that too. Are they doing this just in time for the recession? I mean, is that the recession? I mean, I haven't really seen the the data on this, but I did uh, read Procter & Gamble had record profits. They've been just sort of crushing it lately, but they're about to announce a drop, but they're potentially not going to hit their numbers. They're going to they're announce that they're going to drop sales forecasts because of this actual story. So, it sounds like <laughs> it sounds like there's a shipping problem. I don't know exactly. We should probably get down to the root of it um, for the next show, but but definitely, I do see incoming recession. Well, but with with, with a thirty seven dollar year end crude call for sure. Yeah, <laughs> but the IA says the world will burn another one point seven million barrels a day in twenty twenty three, reaching a record high of almost one hundred two million barrels 
Goldman Sachs forecast a demand leap this year of 2.7 million barrels, pushing oil prices back above $100 a barrel. So I'm just defeating myself here, but that is hot off the press. Yeah, Jeff Curry has been pretty, uh, I think, pretty consistent and pretty vocal about the super cycle. And, Mm -hmm. you know, he's calling it months ago in in all commodities and and certainly is still on that train as far as crude goes. I saw, um, it's about a year and a half ago, OPEC had updated a long range forecast, um, that said between, I think 20 and 2045, 2020 and 2045, you're going to see a net increase globally of 8 million barrels a day. Not obviously not per year, but the, the notion that demand continues to grow, albeit at a, at a slower rate is made up of a, a, a forecast of a decline an OECD of 4 million barrels a day and an increase in non-OECD consumption of 12, 12 million barrels a day. So it's that not, that's feels not nothing. Right. Yeah. That totally feels right. Cause I mean, it seems like my professional career oil demand went up a million barrels a day, you know, 20 some odd years straight. I mean, we had a, it's a percent, percent and a half a year. Yeah. We had a decline. We had a decline back, uh, in 08, 09, but that's really, you know, outside of the COVID decline. That was the, uh, the only one I can really remember. I mean, it makes sense. You got, you got people coming out of COVID. You've got, um, population has been growing. It just makes macro sense that you're going to burn more oil and gas, especially like renewables. Let's, I mean, we're going to talk about this later on the show. Renewables are not cutting it for what we need for, for, for lifestyle, for feeding and powering and giving energy to people that don't have it. There's a lot of reasons, but I, I see oil demand going up. People are, are definitely forecasting it, but my prediction of $37 has to do with macro bad events that just completely crush the economy, not because people don't want to yeah, I mean, they're, 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 I'm, 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 I'm betting on black swan. <laughs> there's, there's kind of an ambient upward force r- related to population growth and where that population is growing most rapidly, right? And, mm-hmm. and just a basic standard of living and then aspirations to improve that standard of living. India, Latin America, China. And, and we heard it in the now famous um, Oxford Union piece. I think we're going to be talking about that as well. Um, you know, the, the contention was that climate change is going to be driven by Asia and Latin America. Right. And I would throw Africa in there as well. Yeah. Based on the, the premise that they talked about of, you know, poor people wanting to not be poor anymore. Right. So. And poor people don't give a shit about uh, first world problems. No, that's exactly right. The, because uh, uh, I didn't even know who Constantine, is it Kyson? Is that how he pronounces his last name? Keeson? Your guess is as good as mine. Keeson. I'll make a call a out British, to him and try to get him on our show for next week. Do. A British satirist who grew up in Russia. Yeah. Right. right. Born in Moscow, moved to Russia when I think he was 13. And uh, if you haven't seen that his speech, and was he at Parliament? He was at the Oxford Union. Oh, yeah, he, he was, was at, at the Oxford Union. Oh, they did the debate yeah. series. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, it's one of the greatest things ever because he, he lays mm. out the point you were saying. It's like, if you can give your kid a better life, you don't really give a fucking shit about, you know, I mean, green energy. My congressman, Dan Crenshaw, was talking about it on one of the news shows this morning. So it's, it, I think it's been seen well over 5 million views. 
So, well, and the other side of his speech, so he lays it out and he just says, Hey, you know, England is 2% of the emissions. You can do everything you want, but you know, it's going to be, like you said, it's going to be Asia. It's going to be Africa and uh, South America that really drives us as they want to come out of poverty. But the flip side to the speech too, is he says, and the sad thing about the woke environment is it makes you guys sit around and be a bunch of crybabies instead of doing something about it. And the doing something about it is what we've always done in, in humanity is go out, create technology so that we can address this problem. And instead work, you guys work, are work, create and build. Absolutely. The three things that you talked about. One of the, one of the sidebars here, he was talking about, um, is it president or premier? She in his experience growing up was not a good one. I mean, the, the Chinese communist party basically during destroyed the cultural, cultural revolution destroyed his family. And so, uh, the, the, the visual of scratching and clawing your way up the greasy, bloody pole of Chinese mm -hmm. politics to the very, very top, you're very interested in delivering what the citizenry cares most about and that is economic prosperity. And so, you know, where are we in the hierarchy of, of priorities politically in, you know, a country that emits probably three times the U S mm -hmm. um, building more coal plants, blah, blah, right. blah. So, and, and the trajectory. Yeah. And I, I didn't know that about his background in terms of, you know, I think his sister killed herself and, you know, lost his dad to, detention mother had he was to, sent away had to, to live into a, a cave dwelling whatever that is yeah his mom had to, to denounce the father so it was it was a pretty brutal experience i will say when i was in uh china in 20 december of 2019 when i got the original strain of covid we were meeting with the sort of head of my uh companies she was head of sort of my company's uh uh division in china and she laid out this beautiful story of how she came from poverty and how China has gotten better and better. The economy has improved and look at our lifestyle. Now it was a great speech. It was definitely based upon a, you know, very communist worldview, but it was clear to me that she and president, um, uh, Xi Jinping, um, that they're saying the same story, which is we're not, we don't care about first world problems. We care about if we can provide prosperity to our people, we're going to lift it up. And, and as history has continued to say the same story over and over again, is that you need cheap energy prices to do that. Right. Um, so it does make sense, but, but a lot of us don't want to admit that. Well, and we've, we've talked about it on here I mean, just in my lifetime, anecdotally, who had a kiddo that did Model UN, went to China a few times, so I've had a passing interest. It does feel like the Chinese government, despite being an authoritarian bad actor, is way more responsive to its people today than it was 30, 35 years ago. Well, yeah, I mean, to since, your point, since Tiananmen? To your point of, uh, yes, absolutely. Without question. Yeah. And, and you saw more recently the let up if you will on the draconian lockdowns and and right. you know some of the violent backlash that i don't know if citizens got away with but um nonetheless there's to your point i, I think they've become much more politically astute and responsible out of necessity but i think the net net story here is that we 
I think everyone here wants a cleaner world and we have to be pragmatic how we do it. And in order to change the world, we have to invent new technologies. And, and that's why I got into energy in 2010. It's, is I'm not going to change the game. There's no reason to complain. I love a clean world. I surf. I love the oceans. I don't want to glow when I get out, even though when I surf and surf side, I do glow when I get out. <laughs> um, we, the only way to change the game is to invent technology that's going to make it better. And, and that also includes, which I think Constantine said in a speech, is it has to be cheaper. Because the one thing that, you know, I've argued with shale, um, which has been great for output, is that it's more expensive. And usually technology that delivers the same product for higher cost is not going to win in the long run. Right. Well, it, that, that's a function of Mother Nature and the rock, right? Absolutely. It, it's at the bottom of anybody's familiar with the resource triangle it's easy to find and hard to get at the top of the resource triangle. It's hard to find and easy to get all the great super giant conventional fields over the past 150 years that have been discovered and are, and are now in old age. Right. So um, it, it is unique in that, in that regard, but upstream of all those technologies as we're seeing is really the minerals and metals reality that puts, I think upward, cost and price pressure on those technologies. You're starting to see it in, or you have seen it in lithium ion batteries over the past couple of years because of the explosion in demand on things like lithium. Yeah. I've been investing into technologies for, for eight years now to, to try to solve this problem, but you were right. talking about cobalt earlier. Do you, you want to throw those stats out? Yeah. There was another quite viral thread by a 40-year career miner named John Lee Pettimore. You can find him on Twitter. Although uh, after this explosion of interest in this long thread that he wrote about observations from a career on the front lines in, in mining globally and a lot mining a lot of different stuff, is that really to meet the forecasts of transition in renewables is going to require. I think Herculean is pretty mild mm -hmm. effort to expand production capacity globally on some key things and cobalt, which we've, we've talked about and we're anticipating um, Siddharth Kara's book, Cobalt Red here, I think in two weeks, January 31st, the multiple on cobalt between now and 2035 is he puts it at 24 times, right? Which is in most of the key rare earths is, uh, somewhere in the multiple of two to nine times. And, and so um, also a lot of detail and again, very experienced observations on just how dirty the mining business is when you employ things like sulfuric acid extensively. It's not the boy scouts doing it. Exactly. Yeah. And it, he, he, he also, one of the other fun facts that he pointed out is that at least one fifth of the arable land in China is somehow negatively impacted or polluted by mining activity. And that's, you know, that's, that's a reality. And uh, there's another stat. I don't remember the precise number, but I think it's 37 million square kilometers of the earth will be impacted by the mining activity needed to uh, support um what the forecast forecasts are for the transition to renewables back in my young days when i was working for for michael big mike i called him uh mr dell um 
we had a huge PR problem regarding recycling and people started coming out. It's like recycling computers with these batteries, like it all goes to China and they send these giant domes and, and all these bad chemicals leach out and destroy the water supply. And I was sort of a fix it guy. Like any, any problem within the company, they'd send guys like me out to go figure it out. So I created the first recycling program for that reason. It's like, it was a PR fix, but it was like, there's a real problem here. It's been going on for decades of these materials, which, you know, our computers are now our electric vehicles, et cetera, et cetera. These, these, these materials that are, are not only really hard to find and get out of the ground, and, and the sulfuric acid and the leaching required to get them out of the ground. But then when the useful life is over, how do we get rid of this stuff without killing people? So China has been sort of taking all these materials for a long, long time. And so that doesn't surprise me that the arable land has been poisoned. Well, the recycling on technology on computers and, and personal technology is much more of a human and labor intensive exercise than I think the layperson or the cons average consumer appreciates. Mm you know, and recycling is grossly inefficient in certain metals and minerals in particular, just because you've got all these different, I'll use the tech term form factor of, of the technology. <laughs> well done. Mark. And, and so, um, you know, the, the, the notion that the benefit from an economic standpoint of recycling minuscule amounts, and Mark Mills has written about this as well. And some mm -hmm. of the past work that he's he's his research on on mining over the last couple of years at least the stuff that i've read is that it, it's just you know it doesn't lend itself to kind of scaled up automation right and, well, and and separating the hazard from exposure to the humans that actually have to do the the recycling work it's 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 important and again I mean, I think you said it we all want a clean world it's just being thoughtful and real about it 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 winds up, you have a recycling program in your neighborhood and all, and they take it and they just ship it to China and they dump it. You kind of get the, the eyes averted. We're not looking in. It's the same thing with actually mining in the Congo. It's nine-year-old kids down there, you know, breathing in all that crap, dealing with those chemicals at age 17, dying from respiratory diseases. We're turning the other way from Which it. goes back to Constantine's point. It's like that nine-year-old is doing what he has to do to survive. Right. He's poor. He's not thinking about recycling. He's not thinking about renewables. He's thinking about, I need food on my table because my parents are forcing me to work because we have nothing. Right. Well, so, you know, I, I think... Um, I think action and work and innovation technology, I think we've proved it throughout the history of, uh, you know, the modern world in, in terms of what it has done to improve standards of living. Um, we have necessary regulation on things like pollution. Uh, as you point out, pollution is something that nobody wants. And, I, you know, I wish we could depoliticize the conversation from climate change to talking about ways to address pollution mitigation, right? So um, in our industry, oil and gas is, has historically not been given a high grade for, you know, its efforts in terms of being progressive on this front. But, you know, there, there, there's a lot of ingenuity and know-how, uh, particularly in the, uh, in the technical community. 
and in the R and D community in oil and gas that, that can contribute greatly to, to really tangible results. And, well, well, let's just take a, 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 I mean, I'm just reading here, spot natural gas prices in Southern California this month have averaged around $19 and 40 cents per BTU. This, that's roughly five times the U S benchmark, which is set at a pipeline as we know, Henry hub, which is traded around $3 and 75 cents. Now, that's a huge problem. If I lived in Southern California, I'd be pissed because now all of my income or lack thereof for you and me is going to pay for our electric bill just went up five X. Now at the same time, I'm looking at these newer shale wells. This is from the Permian initial production over 30 days and ultimate recovery is going down over the last couple of years. So we've got this sort of technological challenge where even in the United States, we need cheaper gas for people to live a decent wage and have a, you know, I'm sorry, I know that's a political word, but them to have, you know, be able to afford where they're living. We need to solve these oil and gas technology problems, let alone figuring out where to get more cobalt, right? Well, you know, I'll say kind of two things on this point. I truly believed in my heart of hearts when I was fundraising energy fund eight. So let's call that Turka circa 2016. I like 17. Turka. 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 Circa, circa. Turka 2016. Turka. I like it. Turka. I do like that. Let me get a shirt. Are we going to go to Selena? This Turka is like almost you. a Selena bridge, but we'll get, <laughs> we'll get, get to we'll there. Get right? to, we'll get to my girl in just a second. But um, I truly believe the cost structure of shale was rivaling Saudi Arabia. I mean, I think in hindsight it wasn't, but what? No, I really you sold that shit. I really, be, I really believe that for the new incremental barrel. I mean, it's so Saudi, to get rich, Saudi, you got it. But I've also believe I've sure. also believe Saudi does not have it behind the spigot to just turn on. Yeah, you know, but that, but but Saudi has addressed unconventional as well. Absolutely, has said there may be a time and a place for it, but it's way in the future because the conventional that we've got is so bad. Is so much better. I mean, that, I mean, fair enough. And we were. I mean, this was the point of oil, oil field service companies still had enough money that they weren't going broke and were operating at a loss. So that was part of it. Working for practices. And, and, and it was a lot of kind of we had pioneered a new field. And so we had cheap, you know, acreage costs and stuff. But look, I get that. The uh, second thing I will uh, I will say to that end is probably Turka because I just forgot it. <laughs> Turka, I love that. Turka. We should go there. But on the good news, speaking Turka. of, if we do get low energy prices, Apple has announced that they're working on a touchscreen Mac. Ooh. Now, Steve Jobs hated that idea because he's like, it's a nightmare, you know, from a user experience. But I'm like, I'm kind of digging that. Yeah. Well, but let's let's tie this into the next story that I want to make sure we we touch on because uh, I think this matters. So we've been talking about all these minerals we've got to get. The IRA basically came in and said, we're all on, we're all in on electric vehicles, right? We're doing it. We have prescribed this. We're not going to have, you know, natural gas based gasoline that might lower emissions. We're all on electric vehicles. Tesla here over the last month has cut Model 3, Model Y prices by up to 20% in US, Europe a week after they cut it in Asia. Does that tell me people don't want this shit? I mean, right? 
Why do well, you cut I, price? I, I think generally in automobiles, I'm seeing data points where there's fairly substantial deflation of the bubble that occurred during the uh, the COVID crunch, uh, particularly in, in used cars. Does this mean Tesla is now a car company instead of a technology company? I mean, as I a, wouldn't go that far. As okay. a simpleton, which I'm master of the obvious here, I was a pricing expert back in my technology days. You drop prices really for one reason, and you find this to, to be pretty consistent over time, is that when you drop prices, you're trying to pull in demand. You don't increase. It's rare that... You don't drop a price and someone that never considered a Tesla goes, I want to buy a Tesla today because the price is low. You actually are going after people that want a Tesla, but they just can't pull the trigger yet. They're dropping prices to keep, they need to hit demand numbers to keep momentum. So I think with, as this sort of looming recession happens, I think they're getting ahead of the curve saying, let's drop prices and let's pull in demand because pulling in demand has one thing going for it is it creates momentum and allows you to raise more debt and allows you to pay bills. And so I'm saying that I think that's a strategy is you're right. Demand's fallen or not at the same pace that they required. And I think that I did see a story about that. Um, so that's my story. I think he's trying to pull in demand um, and because of the looming um, potential recession. Or black swan event that I so forecast. So you're ba- you you two are basically saying this is macro stuff. You're saying all car prices are just coming down. This is part of it. And you're you're saying we've got a recession coming. This isn't anything specific to electric vehicles or maybe Tesla itself. It, it it may be specific to Tesla. I'm not a big Tesla follower. Uh, don't own it, but uh, don't own a Tesla either. Uh, I think as I pointed out, I own the opposite. I just short Tesla, but that's just me. Um, what this is? This I, I, is I think it may be a little bit of headline bias um, because right. it's you know the the subject and its leader are so controversial and generate a ton of headlines relative to to everything else. Or maybe it's a recognition of look the the real auto manufacturers or the traditional auto manufacturers have gotten a lot better at producing an EV and they're getting a lot more aggressive competitively. So I'm, I need to get nearer to a mm-hmm. competitive price point and get some uptake in the market. I don't know. I like it's, your point that maybe it's bashing Musk for Twitter. You know, the, the media is turned on. That's let's, possible. Let's, let's, let's bash, uh, bash, uh, Tesla. Now. I mean, Bad it's it's like, seeing, it's right? like seeing the, you know, the obligatory stacked rig and frack spread yards at the, you know, in a down cycle, you, you're seeing the, the, the appearance of car lots that are just stacked with Teslas available for sale. Yeah. I will say it's a small data point, but one of my buddies uh, started his company in Corpus. Everything goes to Corpus, Hometown. but it's used, it's a used car business that's blowing up in a good way. And what they've gone, they specifically target um, those that have sort of bad credit, but have stable jobs. So think about why Corpus, because Corpus in Texas has the highest number of sort of oil field uh, workers. They don't have great credit, but they need a dependable car to get to and from. And so their business is doing really well, growing like crazy, and they provide dependable cars and good financing for bad credit people. Um, they're about to open a huge Houston location. I, I think that's a trend. Um, Interesting. So I don't know if that correlates, but I'll I'll do some uh, some midget math here. Oh, sorry, uh, small Short person people. math. Yeah. 
and figure it out. I work the rigs from three to midnight on the Corpus Christi Bay. All right. I got one take I want to throw out to you two guys. So, Julie, go ahead and be ready to put the camera on them because they're going to roll their eyes oh, or sure. whatever. But, okay, we've all been following President Biden, right? And that he, he, he had classified documents from his time as vice president, found him in his office at the University of Penn where he'd set up his foundation where the Chinese had given $40 million that Hunter was being paid out of. Um, they found him at his house. There was the famous exchange with Peter Ducey about being next to his Corvette in the garage, all that Hunter, it turned out was claiming ownership of that house and or paying $50,000 in rent on his application Vermont. to get a, yeah, uh, to get a, a, a gun and all that. Here's my take. <clears throat> Cause I want to go on the record of saying this. Ultimately, what we're going to figure out is vice president Biden took documents through Hunter, sold it to the Ukrainians and the Chinese. And the reason I'm bringing it up on BDE, because we're not a political show, is ultimately I think it was related to energy type stuff. And that is going to come out over the next 12 to 18 months. Do you have the eye rolling stuff, Julie? You got it. <laughs> that going. might be the best take I've heard in, in 30, 30 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we're going to have to edit who gets finger of the week this week after that <laughs> remark. But no, seriously, like, tell me I'm crazy, but I just, I thought that this weekend as I was trying to piece things together. Why can't you draw that conclusion? That's a great conclusion. We should ask, Mark. we should be able to ask that question. Yeah, you know, I like to think that there's a lot of chaos and moving out of your office when there's a change in administration because it's, you know, we've seen it, it's happened to both. I'm more concerned and would be more interested in exploring this this thread as it relates to the stuff that was in the Penn Biden Center than you know the stuff that happened to be in his garage at his house. Supposedly, according to National Archives, is Obama and Clinton presidents prior have ha have many more documents outstanding. So I, this is a issue I think happens all the time. But why now? Right. Why is his own personal attorneys going, hey, I found more documents. That just seems suspect to the most powerful man in the world. Um, doesn't make sense. Yeah, some, someone was, you know, saying you can't you can't compare the two apples to apples because there was, you know, the instance of alleged obstruction of, of justice in the Trump case. Well, how's your personal lawyers getting in front of the DOJ? to do the discovery and cleanup, not obstruction as well. Right? Absolutely. So there's, there's a lot of equivalence here. I, I think, you know, I, I think like nuclear material, real nuclear material, there's, if you went to the national archives that you've probably got more unaccounted for inventory than, than you believed. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so if this, if this tightens up the process and there, and there's no reason with, you know, electronic, uh, uh, record keeping and surveillance that we can't keep eyes on, so to speak, our classified material 24 well, seven and, and 365. I, and it doesn't, you know, it's, it, it's I thought a, we sold that material to foreign governments. <laughs> now. So if we're actually going to talk political for just a second on a, on a serious note, although I was serious about my take, 
the thing that bothers me about the two cases is I have a tendency to think if we elected someone president or vice president and they take some classified documents, we just need to live with that. Yes, we should try to have rules in place. But to your point, it accidentally gets done. Somebody wants to go write their book because we all know they get paid a ton for writing books and they take documents. I'm kind of like, so be it. Let's kind of look the other way. The thing that really worries me in the difference between these two cases is Trump, we at least have a chain of custody on. I mean, Trump took it. It's been sitting there. The National Archives showed up and said, hey, can you at least put a padlock on this door? He did that. There's no chain of custody on Biden's stuff. And that's what scares me, particularly with the cast of characters that Hunter's been running I around I feel on. good, though, because Hunter had access and Hunter's a good steward, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> no comment. Uh, all right. Well, I just wanted to throw in that in there. Now, of course, we end every show with the finger of the week. All right, stick with me, guys. On uh, This is about 30 years too late, a finger of the week. But, uh, you know, I did my walkabout, as we've discussed on BDE, and we talked about on Chuck Yates Needs a Job. And I wound up in Corpus, and I went to the Selena Museum. And as we know, Selena was killed, I believe, March 31st of 1995 by Yolanda Saldivar. That's on my calendar. It's a big Saldivar. Saldivar. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh President of the fan club. So GW Goldman, I'm watching you just, just so we're clear. But no, th so this is my serious take. One of the things that the museum highlights is on February 26, 1995, she sold out the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo. The big go, time. Go Tejano Day. And it was a big coming out type party because she was going to make her transition from Spanish singing star to dominating everything. This is where right? George Strait made his, made totally. it. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, this is a big deal. It, it, it's a, it's a really big deal. And what bum Phillips said about coach Don Shula was Don's such a good coach that he can take his players and beat your players. And then he can take your players and beat his players. If you go listen to the opening song that Selena did that night, you know, floor of the uh, Astrodome there, she does a disco medley. She takes the greatest hits of disco. I Will Survive, Funky Town, uh, Radio, Stayin Last Alive. Dance. I don't think she did Staying Alive, but she put six of them together, five or six of them together. She did it her way. She infused some Latin beats in it. She talked Spanish to the audience in the middle. But in effect, she basically said, I'm the greatest Spanish singer on the planet. And I can beat yours with that. I can also take yours and do yours better. It is a stunning mm -hmm. seven minutes. I think everybody needs to listen to it because I believe I've listened to it several times on the drive back. I believe when you hear that song, you are hearing somebody that could have been Taylor Swift, could have been Billie Eilish, that level star. There's a reason but why March has two important holidays. Texas Independence Day, second, and Selena's death. Yep. You have to celebrate both. So I'll interject here on more Selena uh, tributes and memorials because uh, she's from my hometown. Um, 
I saw it. I think I told you, Chuck, on uh, Texas Bucket List. I don't know if you've ever seen that show. It's dude travels around to all the quirky, fun places. And He's who we want to be. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, last name's McAuliffe. I, for, I forget his first name. Anyway, so he had a feature on something called Country Burger, which is near the Oak Cliff section in Dallas. And you think, well, it's going to be just a country-themed burger joint. Well, you walk in, and it's got Selena all over it. And, it. and the story is, and it opened, well, at least the manager who got permission from the owner, owner 26 years ago after having seen Selena just the year before. So he's been the manager there since 1995, uh, right about the time of her death. He had seen her in concert and is such a super fan. He asked the owner for permission to over time decorate the place with Selena paraphernalia. So Chuck, you need to pay a visit to country burger in Dallas to go to the unofficial Selena tribute museum. Will will y'all two join me? We'll grab a camera crew. We're going, we'll stop at a Bucky's post post keto, but, and, and oh, well, we've shit. also got to stop in West so that we get kolaches. We'll do we'll absolutely. Do that. We'll do, we'll do for, that for all you hipster assholes in Austin that run Ladybird Lake. It's the best section of Ladybird Lake is when you hit that ten mile loop, you go past this one spot. And those of you in Austin, if you don't know it, if you do know it, tell me because I do. It says Selena forever. It's the greatest spray paint job I've seen. I should go. I'll go take pictures. But we have to stop there too. Oh, hell yeah. This is going to be awesome. Coming live from the road next week, BDE. But, uh, guys, this was fun, as always. And who's the finger of the week? Did we actually say it? Yolanda. The it's killer. Yolanda the killer. Yeah, yeah. the killer. Selena. The killer. What could have been? Selena. What could have been, in all, in all yeah. seriousness. Uh, Digital Wildcatters, thank you for joining us this week. We will be back next week. We're holding a prayer vigil later on this afternoon for Colin's Colin. prostate. Please join us. <laughs> Thanks, guys.